Um, I was trying to think this morning about what to talk about, and I've been reading some of the Jataka tales. So there's one that stands out in my mind that uh, also, to, for me, relates to something I just read in a, a book by Chogyam Trungpa, who's a Tibetan teacher that I liked. So I'll tell you the story first. Uh, there were two two merchants, and these are stories from the, uh, the Jataka tales. If you don't know, they're stories that the Buddha told about his previous lives. So there was way before the time of the Buddha that we know. But they're previous incarnations of the Buddha. So they're morality tales, they're fables, and you and the Buddha's always one of the characters and some other of his students or other characters. But they they are just good tales whether we think about whether we relate to previous lifetimes or not. So in this story, it was long before the time of Buddha, there are two merchants and they have to travel way across the desert to take their goods to sell at the market. And one's a greedy merchant and one is not a greedy merchant. So the merchants have, they have, both have 500 carts. And so they have all the, the uh, oxen and the, the uh, people to, to take five, each, tea, each merchant has 500 big carts. So they're huge uh, groups of people that they've got to get across this, these deserts and feed and take care of and be protected from the elements. And the two merchants know they can't, they, they're ready, they're both ready to go, but they know they can't go together at the same time because they couldn't, they couldn't make it with that many people and men and, and uh, oxen. So it's who's going to go first? So the one merchant just keeps quiet, and the greedy merchant decides, well, if I go first, I'll have, uh, I'll get to the market first, of course, so my, my goods can set the price and I can get the best price. And the next merchant will come and there won't, he'll have to just take whatever, you know, whatever people want the price to be lower. He said, and if I go first too, my oxen will have all the grass, the good grasses and stuff on the side of the road. So we'll have more, I'll have more food for my animals and, uh, We'll t- we had, they have to take water with them, so he was well prepared. He had giant clay urns of water, and he had uh, wagon loads of that because they need water for the whole trip. And he thought the roads would be better because you know the my oxen can go down the road, and we'll we'll put ruts in the road, but then the other guy behind me has to deal with that. So he said, "I'll go first. And so he took off with his 500 wagons and uh, over, I think, 500 men, too. It's a huge group of people. And the second merchant said, that's fine. That's, that's great. Because he decided he would go next, and so the roads would be kind of widened and be better from the first group going. And he thought when his group went, there'd be new grasses coming up where the other oxen had eaten the rough stuff on the top, <laughs> so his oxen would get the nice, fresh little uh, things growing. And he carried the water with him, too. So the first merchant is going and and going as quickly as he could, but he had all these big clay urns full of water, which was really, uh, you know, slowed the group down at the end. So they're heading out into the desert, and there's a demon, kind of a 
not a deva, but a demon like a, a god who's who's watching all this. And they're watching the they're watching the two group of the, the first group of the five hundred cards going, and the demon decides, Oh, this is gonna be fun. So the demon turns himself into a beautiful prince, just a perfectly handsome, and he turns his ox he turns uh he creates a, a white ox that looks like it's from a you know the like the very best kind of ox and a kind of a golden horned beautiful white pure ox and a chariot that's golden and he and he appears to the first merchant he comes riding out of uh you know it's all desert so but he comes riding out of some unknown spot and he's dripping wet and he has lotus leaves hanging off of his head and around his neck He's just soaking wet, and his carts and his oxen are wet. So he comes up to the first merchant, and they greet each other. And the merchant says, I, I can't help but notice, you know, you're soaking wet. <laughs> and they're in the middle of, de of a desert. So the demon tells him, oh, yeah, I mean, I'm wet because, you know, there's a big oasis over there, and there's, there's water and lotus and uh, lots of food, lots of things growing. It's just this beautiful spot over here. And the the merchant's thinking to himself that, well, that would be nice, but, you know, we've got plenty of water. We'll keep going. The demon says, you know, there is so much water there, and it's just gorgeous. You can rest. You can get everything you need. And you could you can make your trip faster if you bust up those urns of water and dump that off your wagons because then you can travel faster and get to the market faster so you can sell all your goods and you can drop the water off because there's this oasis and you can get plenty of water there. So the merchant's greedy. So he decides, okay, that sounds good. It's He's kind of surprised there's water in the middle of the desert, but he has proof, you know, this guy's here. So he, they roll off and break all the big clay urns that are full, full of water, and they take off for the oasis. And, and of course, he gets there, and there's nothing there. It's completely, there's no oasis, there's no water. And so his, his, he has no water. He, he, he doesn't have a drop of water. So his men, uh, this, decide they're going to camp out, they have no solution to the problem. The animals become weak. The people, the men are weak because they don't have water. And in the middle of the night, the demon with all his fellow demons come in and they uh, kill all the people and eat them and they kill all the animals and they, the, five, the 500 men, the 500 wagons with all the oxen pulling, they just kill all of them and eat them. Because that's what demons do in the story. <laughs> they feast on flesh. So. And all they leave are the wagons. There, there's nothing. There's no the urns, of course, are gone, but the wagons are just sitting there and all and skeletons. It's all skeletons all around. You, you can step in any time if I get way off track on this story. <laughs> I think this is pretty factual. <laughs> So then the second merchant, who's not the greedy merchant, is getting ready to set out. It's been enough time for the first group. So he sets out with his 500 cart wagons and his oxen and his 500 men, and he has the urns, too, full of water. So they're crossing the desert. 
And there, and you know, his oxen have enough to eat because he was right. The new grasses are coming up, so that's there's there's food for his oxen, and they're moving slowly along the trail. And the demon does exactly the same thing. He appears as this beautiful prince with a gold chariot and a white, pure white uh, oxen pulling it, and he's soaking wet, and he has lotus leaves and everything, lotus branches just dripping off of him. It's just totally wet. And he approaches the merchant, has the same story, and tells him, you know, you this oasis is there. It's Let go of all that water and you'll get to the market faster. And the merchant says, no, I, you know, we've got a plan and I've got, we've got water and we'll, we'll keep on going. And the, the, but the merchants, um, the, the demon goes away, but then the merchants, all the men who are with the carts, all of his, all of his helpers have, have seen this demon and have talked to the demon's, uh, followers. And they come to the merchant and say, you know, this is, this is, uh, this guy's telling us there's water and we can see signs of it. Everything's wet. It looks like they just came right out of the pool. So we know it must be really close, just right around the corner. And we think we should go there. We think that sounds, that sounds great. And we could go faster, get to market faster. And so we think you should really reconsider. They were getting really upset, almost like they were going to get rid of the the master and and take this sidetrack themselves. And the the merchant said to them, okay, now wait a minute. Uh, If there's water in an oasis, that means there must be rain. There's been rain recently. And he said, now look out over the desert. Do you see any clouds that would give you any indication that there's recently been rain or thunderstorms or any kind of moisture in the air? No. He said, have you heard any thunder? And he said, you know, he asked them, how how far ahead can you hear thunder? And and how far ahead can you see lightning? And they, they said, oh, you know, we can see into the desert this certain length. And he said, have you seen any thunder? Have you seen any lightning? Have you seen any clouds that would indicate that there's that much rain to fill up an oasis? And have we ever had any indication that there's an oasis over here? And, and finally, his guys say, they're kind of crabby about it, but they say, okay, okay, maybe you're right. But we really believe this guy because he came right in front of us and he, he was soaking wet. And he, and he looked pretty good, too, so that gave him a lot of credibility. <laughs> so they decided they would go a little bit further and trust their boss for a little bit. So they, they kept on their path. And then, of course, not very far ahead, they found all the skeletons all over the ground. They found the 500 men and the 500, and the wagons, of course, were just sitting, sitting there, still full of the, still full of the, uh, whatever they were taking to market. (coughs) But the skeletons were obvious proof that the, that the story had been, had not been true, had been false. And so the, the, uh, the merchant's people were all pretty happy that he had stayed on this path. So they took a rest. They had plenty of water, so they took a rest. They, uh, they, they traded parts, like they took the wagons that were still good and fixed, fixed their wagons with that. And they had all this, they had all the wagons that were just left behind from the other <coughs> merchant to repair theirs. 
and they knew there'd probably be some more trouble from the demon. So they were able, because they still had water, and they were able to uh, get a good rest and have plenty of water for their animals, then they kind of put their wagons in a circle, and when the demons came, they withstood the demons, and the demons didn't have any power over them. So then they were able to go, not only with their own stuff, but with the stuff that they had been able to take from the other um, from the other carts that, that didn't have any master, any merchant again. And so uh, they went and they were successful and that merchant who was who turned out to later be the Buddha, that was a Buddha in a previous life, uh, it, because of his good fortune and because of that good decision that he had made in the trip, he dedicated the rest of his life to always being charitable and giving things to people who needed it. And um, So I like, that's the story. And I like the story because he's, this, what he tells them at the end is, what we have to always do is, is see things as they really are and see clearly the way things really are. So there was this wonderful image that came to them, this demon came to them and looked exactly like what they wanted to see. And they wanted to think there's water. We're going to not only have water, but we'll get to the market faster, we'll get rich faster, get through the desert faster. But the, the wise merchant knew, even with that beautiful man with all the water dripping off of him and all the beautiful words and everything just perfect, he knew, here's what we really know. We know what the sky looks like. We know, we know the desert. We know the weather. We know the signs to tell us if there's been rain that would have created an oasis. So what we have to do is keep, is keep going with what we know to be true and not be, not be sidetracked by this kind of illusion of the, the pure white oxen and the great beautiful speaker with the, uh, with the water dripping off of his body. <laughs> so I, I like that story because of, of how clearly it's, it's talking about, you know, when we, when we practice, we're always, what we want to do is see things as they really are and to see things clearly. And we know how often we get sidetracked from that, how, how you know, a shiny penny can sidetrack us off the, off the trail. And... Um, after I read that story, I was I was reading the, uh, parts of this book. It's called "The Path Is the Goal." It's from a Tibetan teacher, but he talks about um, there are two things he talks about that connect for me. And one was he talks about when we take the precepts, what that really means, taking refuge in the Buddha and the Dhamma and the Sangha. And what he's saying it cor- corresponds to something that Bhante Sujata says a lot. Um, what Chogyam Trungpa says is when we take the precepts what we're taking a precept to do is basically that we're going to keep practicing that we're, that we are, we're taking the path of meditation as a way to end our suffering that we're, and, and Bhante Sujata always says, you know, we're not Buddhist we, we, we don't have to be a label and call ourselves Buddhist, what we do, what we are what did he say last week? Breathist. <laughs> we breathe. We're, we breathe. You know, that's what our practice is. <laughs> we're breathing and we're working with our breath and we're we're finding the way out of 
suffering by by breathing and by paying attention, being mindful and paying attention. And that's what he says. Uh, he talks about the refuge. When we take the precepts, we're giving up solid ground. You know, we're going into homelessness, but we're doing it because what we're taking on is our meditation practice that we're going to just keep doing it. And we don't always get reason. We don't always feel, it doesn't always feel good, but our practice, it's our practice. We're honing our, we're honing our work with our minds so we can get to that point where we see things clearly and we see things as they really are. I think there was one other thing he said that I really liked. Uh, and then he ta- he talks again about this made the connection with the merchants for me. He talks about the when we're beginning meditation, it's a really narrow path. You know, when you think about it, as and it takes a lot. Beginning meditation is a long time because we probably all feel like our practice is not where we want it to be. I mean, our practice is a lifelong thing. We're 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 honing our <coughs> skills all the time. But he talks about it being, uh, it's a narrow path, and it's and it's a it's a, it's a narrow, s- severe path. But that's our practice. But it's all breathing. So, yeah. yeah. Does the path become wider as we experience, as we practice? No, I think it does. And he talked he. The way he talks about it is the the our training that initial practice is narrow because you know it's getting ourselves on the cushion and sitting there and watching our breath and that it that it becomes very spacious you know it becomes that spaciousness yeah otherwise what we wouldn't want to keep doing it right if it just stayed narrow but it becomes because of the more we work with our mind the more everything becomes expansive and open for us the, the quote that I like, uh, and I thought about some people in this group too when I read this. Uh, he, he's talking about the beginning of meditation. It's not a matter of being happy and having fun, particularly. It's very difficult. And the student asked him, you mean it has to be conquered? And he said, no, we have to reconcile. We have to become reconciled to it. That the fact that our practice, it's hard to, to make it even to the cushion most days. And he says, there, there are rare Buddhists who are actually going to involve themselves with such a practice. So he's saying, even if you call yourself a Buddhist, it's very rare for a Buddhist to really practice. But he calls them golden Buddhists. They have burned and, ha- who have been burned and hammered and have finally turned into pure gold beyond the 24 karat level, very fine gold. This is very difficult, but it is better to have golden Buddhists than copper Buddhists. <laughs> so I like that. So it's not, it's, we can't take on a label of being Buddhist and think, man, we're, we've done something special. But that, so even the three, the, when we take the precepts, we're, we're just taking on that we're going to practice that that's the path we've chosen. We, we can stop shopping for another way to end our suffering. So I think that's what we're committing to over and over again, that we don't have to keep shopping and looking for 
the latest, greatest, you know, the, the next guy to come out on a golden chariot dripping with lotus leaves. We've, we found it, and it's, it's right where we are right now. It's, doesn't, it does, it's not being a Buddhist. It's uh, committing to the practice that we know is the way we can work with our minds. We have, we have Buddha kids that we want to. We can cut questions short or off so we can have our kids come up. 